You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Hello, church. I imagine many of you have heard of Comic-Con, this hugely popular convention where over 100,000 people each year attend to celebrate the comic book culture and superhero culture and related things, complete with a full load of crazy full-bore costumes. Well, not as well attended, but with still a dedicated following, there was a convention started a few years ago called Stoicon. In 2014, a group of more than 300 people gathered in London for the first Stoicon, which is a conference for people who are dedicated to adopting the ancient philosophy of Stoicism for their modern lives. Now, Stoicon is organized by the nonprofit group called Modern Stoicism. It's actually one of a number of organizations and websites such as dailystoic.com that are promoting the rediscovery of this ancient philosophy called Stoicism to help people live well in the modern world. In fact, if you type Stoicism into Amazon, you'll find not only just translations of classic works by Stoics like Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, but you'll find a slate of modern books promoting the rediscovery and application of Stoicism for today's readers, like Ryan Halliday's The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, perseverance, and the art of living. So what is Stoicism? Well, Stoicism back in Greek and Roman times and down through today is a philosophy of life that focuses on self-control, on training yourself in habits and attitudes so that you can learn to find contentment, so that you can learn to live a contented and thriving life. Because life, of course, is filled with stresses and anxieties and disappointments, with frustrations and relationships and work and fears about the future and health scares and worries about the safety of our children and pain in marriage and job loss. That's universal to human experience, ancient times and now. And all of these situations evoke in us emotions that can be overwhelming. And so Stoicism taught and teaches today these practical habits of focusing our energy only on what we control, on our choices, our emotional responses, our attitudes, not blaming others, not complaining, but focusing your energy on doing what's right and being content. Now, in addition to the books and conferences and daily emails, and I actually get the daily Stoic just to read it, I enjoy reading it, you can buy these, you can even buy these very fancy coins here's one of them, that tell you and remind you of key Stoic principles. Things like amor fati, that you need to learn to love whatever fate gives you. And premeditatio malorum, they're cooler because they they're in Latin. But this is this daily morning practice of imagining all the horrible things that could happen to you in the day and, and realize you'll survive these to train yourself to be detached from the world. Or memento mori, that remember each day that you're mortal, that you're going to die, and that today may be your last day, and so choose to live well. Or the obstacle is the way, the reminder that roadblocks and detours and difficulties are only a problem if you let them be a problem. Instead, if you approach life, seeing obstacles as the way forward, you'll find contentment. 
Now, all these Stoic practices has a, have a purpose again, and they're to teach us how to live, how to thrive and flourish and be content in all circumstances. Here's the question. <laughs> Why in the world am I talking about this? Well, because as we turn to our last text in the book of Philippians today, we're going to see that Paul concludes this powerful letter by hitting right on this universal and deep human question, how do you actually find contentment? We all long for contentment, but it is elusive, like trying to hold on to a stick of butter. But Paul is going to give us a God-sized answer to that question of what contentment is that is life-changing. It's been transforming for me and for millions of other Christians throughout the millennia. So let me pray, and then we'll turn to Holy Scripture. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Holy Scripture that guides and shapes our hearts, our thinking, our words, our attitudes, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've not left us as orphans to just try to figure things out, but you illumine, you open Scripture to us, and you transform and open our hearts, and I pray that you do that now for me and for all my hearers, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So for a few months now, we have been teaching through this biblical book that we call The Letter to the Philippians. And I want to remind you of what I said about it on the first Sunday that we talked about Philippians, that unlike many of other Paul's letters that he wrote to combat some doctrinal error or to address some immorality, the letter of Philippians is different. It's actually a spontaneous utterance. It is a thank you note written from Paul to the Christians that he knew and loved in the city of Philippi. Now, while Paul was faithfully preaching the gospel all over the place, he was regularly attacked and arrested. And after a long time of waiting and being shuffled around in different prisons for a couple years, he's now finally in Rome under house arrest awaiting his trial. And in the midst of that situation where Paul's in, in Rome in prison, which he did not plan, he did not want, he's actually full of joy and he's continuing to labor. He hasn't given up. He's continued to labor as a faithful minister of Jesus. And as a prisoner, you see, he actually has to provide for his own welfare and he has real needs. And so the Christians at the church in Philippi, they loved Paul, they cared for him. And so they sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, a guy named Epaphroditus, to visit Paul, to stay with him for a while. And they sent along a financial gift to help him while he's under arrest. And we know from what Paul says that Epaphroditus, while he was there, got very sick and he nearly died. So after a while now, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this little letter that has been preserved for 2,000 years now. So Paul wrote this little heartfelt, joyful, deeply personal letter to go back to the church of Philippi and say, thank you. And so here we are in the very last section, the grand finale of this letter, and it's very sweet and very personal. After all the wonderful and powerful things Paul said, he concludes it this way. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, finally, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And then skip down to verse 14 and following how he ends the letter. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. So what we see here in this conclusion to the letter is what we saw also in the book of Acts and other letters, that Paul's MO, his way of doing ministry, was that he was called by God to be a traveling evangelist, a traveling church planner. He never stayed in any place very long, two to three years maximum. Not that this is the best way to be a pastor. I don't recommend that. It's not. But he did this because he had a special apostolic calling in this first generation of Christianity to be used by God to spread the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. But the problem is this costs money. So what did Paul do? Well, a lot of times he worked in upholstery. He made tents to help him support himself. But other times, like when he was imprisoned or when he had too much to do of preaching and counseling and teaching, he received financial support from other Christians. And we know that Paul was particularly conscientious about this. He never wanted to be perceived as selling the gospel, as giving the gospel away for money, which is what most other traveling philosophers and teachers did in his day. So his typical mode, very interestingly, was he would receive gifts from other churches. When he's staying in one church, he received gifts from other churches. So there'd be no, it wouldn't look at all like potentially that he was selling the gospel. And what I love about these little verses and what strikes me about them is how personal and real this all is. I think it's so easy for us to think of biblical characters and biblical times as, as unreal, that these weren't really real people, as so different that we can't relate to them. But we see here that the great Apostle Paul was a real person with real needs, that he had loving and caring relationships with real people, and that God and, and to, that helped him do what God had called him to do. These are all people just like you and me, people struggling to pay the bills, working, living imperfect lives, yet they join together to build something beautiful to support this life-changing gospel going forth in the world. And I love the metaphor that Paul uses to describe this, that their giving to him is a fragrant offering to the Lord. The Christian faith doesn't have a temple with animal sacrifices or special incense offerings that must be made. But that doesn't mean we don't worship God in sacrificial ways. We still do it. We do it by blessing each other, by helping each other, by supporting and giving to each other. And it's very real and it's very beautiful. And I love Paul's attitude. Do you notice it there? He's not focused on or worried about the gift or the, the amount of the money he received or something, but he cares more about the relationship, the credit going to the giver. He cares about the promise that God will provide for all their needs. It's very motivating and inspiring. And all of that leads us to the heart of the text. The verses I skipped, verses 11 to 13. And this is the key. Here's the question. How was Paul able, in the midst of all his real needs, he's in prison, how was he able to have such an open-handed relationship to his needs? How was Paul content 
even in the midst of being in prison. He's in prison. It's the opposite of the calling that God had on his life to be a traveling church planner and teacher. He cannot work. He cannot provide for himself. He was also often beaten and persecuted and maligned and misrepresented, accused of wrongdoing. Yet in all these circumstances, he's not begging. He's not complaining. He's not angry. He's not hopeless. Instead, this whole letter of Philippians is exploding with joy. It's full of joy and rejoicing and happiness and love. How in the world is that possible? Well, let's pick it back up in verse 10 and see what he says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, Paul says, for I... I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So there it is. Paul is speaking right into the greatest human question that you and I all face, that you're facing this morning. How do we really find contentment? How do we find shalom and how do we maintain it in all of our circumstances? Because we are people who are restless and longing by nature. So how do we find and keep contentment? Well, the Stoics in Paul's day, who were very popular, they had an answer for this. It's in your attitude. It's all about embracing Whatever happens to you, it's about denying your emotions. Be a Batman, be a Ron Swanson, except when it comes to bacon. Be a Darth Vader. Be detached, be non-emotional. That's why we still call someone who's kind of detached emotionally, we call them stoical or stoic. The Stoics said things like this. Their answer to the question of contentment, don't seek for everything to happen as you wish it would, but rather wish that everything happens as it actually does. Then your life will flow well. Or when you're distressed by an external thing, it's not the thing itself that troubles you, but only your judgment of it, and you can wipe this out at a moment's notice. In other words, what the Stoics taught is that contentment can be found by focusing on your inward character, on learning not to care about the opinions or your circumstances, knowing that everything is temporary, everything is changing, and nothing will really satisfy anyways. So when you're trying to write a sermon, and you find water backing up in your basement for the third day in a row, you can still be content, the Stoics would tell me, with this fate. It only troubles you if you choose to let it trouble you. Easier said than done. But here's the question. Is that what Paul is saying? Is he saying the key to contentment is to just detach and to just focus on your attitude? Is that what Christianity teaches? Well, let's see what Paul actually says the secret to contentment is. Look back at verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And here it is, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. When Paul looks at his life, all the good and all the bad in his life, he has learned contentment, and he's learned that contentment is not found in his circumstances 
in having a good marriage or parenting or success or favor or popularity or money or comforts, nor is it found in stoic denial, saying that nothing's wrong and that everything's just in your mind. No, Paul learned that contentment is not found in circumstances or in an attitude, but in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. The real person, Jesus Christ, who was eternally the Son of God, became incarnate, lived, loved, laughed, suffered, died, was raised from the dead, is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the kingdom of heaven. True contentment in every area of our life will only be found when through the real person of Jesus Christ. So when things are going well for us, when our circumstances are good and great, that's, that's great. We should welcome that. We don't have to seek out bad things in our lives. When we have good things in our lives, they are blessings from God that we should embrace. Friendship, a delicious meal, laughter, an engaging novel, a relaxing vacation. Those are great. And also learning to have a positive attitude is, is good and great. And we should cultivate a positive attitude in our lives and our families. You'll, your life will go much better if you reject a victim mindset for yourself and you take responsibility for your actions. That's all great. But friends, neither good circumstances nor a good attitude are enough to bring you lasting and deep contentment. Because we are restless, striving creatures and nothing else will satisfy Paul has discovered the secret that you and I need as well, that ultimately neither the good circumstances or bad circumstances, a good attitude will bring you the true and lasting contentment you are made for. It can only be found by receiving strength, by receiving a relationship, the gift of the relationship of Jesus Christ. Because you see, our life situations will change. Marriages go through dark tunnels Kids and the big happy family life we dreamed of doesn't turn out. We get the word this week that the secure job we've had for 12 years has suddenly and unexpectedly come to an end. Businesses we've built have been shuttered and shut down because of the reaction to a disease. You have no way to control this. Plans you had for relationships, trips, new businesses are now ripped from your hands. We're facing a fall 2020 that none of us planned for or wanted regarding our kids' education and jobs and finances. So what are we humans to do? What are you doing? Maybe your response is anger and frustration. We see a lot of that in society right now. Maybe your response is more like me where when I, when I feel stressed by things, I just tend to withdraw and disconnect and what I would maybe call or my wife would affirm sometimes apathy with an edge. Maybe it's escape. Maybe it's drinking too much or other addictions. Maybe it's control. That when you feel things are out of control, you grab more tightly. You try to hold on to money or relationships or situations. Those are all natural reactions. But Christianity is offering something different, something solid, something that satisfies, something that works in all circumstances, works for all people, not just certain personality types, works for all times, times of famine, wars, prosperity, winters and summers for the span of our lives. And that is that we can be content in all circumstances <clears throat> because we have been given an intimate, secure, profound, unified relationship with the one person who actually sovereignly and joyfully controls all things in the world for good. He is good and he only does good for us. 
And he gives us a sure and certain hope that he will eventually set all things right and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. There are tons of gurus and philosophers and experts in the world today promising the keys to contentment. At the most crass level is advertising. If you buy this home or this Tesla or this vacation or this product, that'll make you content. But there's more sophisticated and helpful versions, helpful gurus that are offering contentment, whether it's CrossFit or a keto diet or yoga or Peloton or just a life is good coffee mug, which I'm reminded by, it's, it's good. There's a ton of good in a lot of these ideas and habits. There's nothing wrong with these habits. But I guarantee you that sooner or later, every philosophy Every guru is going to leave you cold and unfulfilled, wondering whether there's something more. It's good to exercise and eat well and do peace-giving things to your life, but nothing will satisfy your restless hearts apart from the person of Jesus. The great secret of God's world is that we can learn to live well regardless of our circumstances, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, through our relationship with the risen Jesus, tapping into his strength, residing in us, and empowering us by the Holy Spirit. And don't miss this amazing thing. A lot of times, I think we read this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we think this is kind of like a a Lone Ranger thing, that me and Jesus will get through everything. But notice in the context of all of this, he's saying this in the midst of a relationship with these other Christians who have have provided for his needs, right? So the idea of Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is not just your individual, it's that you are put into the body of Christ, You're united with him personally and with his people. And through that great and deep reality, you can find the contentment you long for. So if if Christianity were making stoicism or Christianity coins to remember, we would just have one coin. And it would be verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm not planning on selling those, although maybe that wouldn't be a bad idea for retirement reasons. But that is the one coin that Christianity offers us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what's God saying to you and me through this? I think he's saying, friends, brothers, sisters, surrender. Give up control. Trust me. We are restless. We are scrambling all over our lives trying to find true and lasting contentment but he won't let you. We don't have to strive and figure it all out. God is giving his strength to us as we receive the gift of life. Here and here only is the real contentment. What I mean is that if we try to solve our restlessness by achieving, it will never be enough because there's always another vista. And And this kind of achieving restlessness or achieving rest through our own efforts, it's not what you really want. If you say you lose another 10 pounds or you have the adrenaline rush of exercise or the temporary peace that comes from mindfulness, you were made for something so much more. None of those things ever last. It is never enough. But we can find true contentment when we receive Christ's strength as a gift. I'm reminded of my very favorite passage of scripture Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, where Jesus says, come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm 50 this year. It's not what 2020 I thought was going to look like. But I say to all those who are younger than me, seek the Lord and find your contentment in him. Your marriage isn't going to do it. Your job isn't going to do it. Your hopes for a career, your friends are not going to do it. None of those things are going to give you the contentment that you will find in seeking the Lord. People older than me, it's not too late. You've seen life. You've seen that it does not satisfy. Seek the Lord and find your contentment in him. So what's this really look like? Well, I think it means looks like it looks like developing habits of Christ awareness in your everyday life, regularly being mindful of turning your hearts to the Lord who loves you in both moments of good things and difficult ones to consciously thank the Lord and get his strength. I think it means starting each day with gratitude and a reorientation of your heart. One of the things the Stoics taught and teach is that every morning you should start by thinking ahead about your day and you should end every evening by looking back on your day. That's a good practice for Christians too, to reorient, but doing it in the presence of Jesus. And in moments of frustration and disappointment, I invite you to work on the habit of self-awareness, to exercise the muscle of self-awareness, to pay attention to your emotions don't deny your emotions. There's win- there are windows onto what's going on in your heart. And when you feel these lack of contentment emotions rising, that's normal. That's part of living in this fallen world. Don't just shut it down or deny its reality, but turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord in that moment. Seek his face and you will find his strength. <clears throat> these are not to-do lists. I'm not trying to give you more things to strive after. I'm trying to invite you to practical ways to surrender to receive the gift of Jesus's strength in your life. So to conclude, if you've talked to me or heard me preach in recent months, you know I'm a bit obsessed with golf right now. And one of the books I'm reading is a book, a classic in golf psychology, Bob Rotella's Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And it actually really has helped my game a lot. Coach Bob doesn't identify himself as a Stoic, but the things he says are basically modern-day golf Stoicism, such as whenever your ball, wherever your ball ends up in the rough or in the sand trap or wherever it is, treat it as an obstacle, and adventure to overcome. There's no room for complaining, moaning, getting angry. Those things actually will only make your game and your swing worse. So it's good stuff, and it's actually helped a lot. But here's the problem. Our life situation <clears throat> is not just a golf course. We not only have to concentrate on the one stroke in front of us, the reality is that our lives, we have to swing the ball while there's simultaneously an earthquake opening a hole at our feet and a hurricane bearing down on the course and our bodies are riddled with cancer. So just having a good disciplined attitude, excuse me, just having a good disciplined attitude isn't enough to make life really work to find true and lasting contentment. We can only find true life by receiving the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ given to calm us, to bring us peace and contentment in his strength. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. 
For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.